When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. In 1940, Adolf Hitler saw the film The Grapes of Wrath. He concluded, according to The Economist, that the Americans had destroyed their sturdy farmer class and hence could not fight a real war. He was wrong. Wartime brought employment, conscription, and increased prosperity to the real-life Jodes, who'd left the Dust Bowl for California. New migrants were brought in to take their place, many of them from Mexico. But the border wasn't simply open. It was at that time that authorities also gained new powers to expel people from countries with infectious diseases. This was intended to ensure that the expected wave of migration after peace wouldn't bring a new wave of death. Those powers stuck around. Title 42 was now on the books. I'm John Prado, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, can Joe Biden's administration solve the border puzzle? Last week, the latest enactment of Title 42 finally expired. Dusted off by the Trump administration in 2020 to reduce the spread of COVID-19 across America's southern border, it was then kept in place by President Biden. Now America is once again forced to consider its border policy. What responsibilities do states and cities far away from the border have? And with Congress frozen, what can the president actually do? With me this week to talk about the border and to talk about the politics of immigration in America are Charlotte Howard in New York and Idris Kaloun. This week, coming to us from London, opposite the table from me. Idris, I'm going to ask you what's going on and you can't reply with your usual weather report about Washington, D.C. You're going to have to say something else. How are you? But I can because when I arrived, everyone said that I brought the good weather with me. And uh, this was kind of confusing because it was light sweater weather at best. I mean, it, it was and it was a little bit gray. So I don't know how bleak it's been for you, but uh, I'm glad to have helped. Idris is becoming so British that he's currently drinking a mug of rather cold tea <laughs> and he just loves talking about the weather. Anyway, it's been delightful to have you over here. Charlotte, how are you doing? What's going on in New York? 
I am well. I had a chat with our colleague Rosemary Ward this week in the office, and she had spent time up in the Hudson Valley talking with migrant families. And I'm looking forward to hearing her report in a moment. But it was just so interesting speaking with her because I think there's a way to intellectualize the border crisis when you're far away from it. And there are moments when it's impossible to do so, for instance, when Trump was separating families at the border. But one of the things that I think those border states wanted to achieve by busing migrants here was to make people in the Northeast and in northern states feel more viscerally aware of the problem. I'm not sure it's having the precise effect that those governors intended, but speaking with Rosemary really drove home the point that even as we have a debate in our studio about immigration policy and so forth, that the human toll here is just so enormous with migrants caught in the middle. So looking forward to talking about it. Yeah, that's right. And we're going to hear from Rosemary first. Just for context, as Charlotte said, last summer, Texas governor uh, Greg Abbott came up with a novel approach to immigration policy, which involved offering asylum seekers free bus transport to Democrat-run cities such as Chicago, Washington, and New York. Ron DeSantis, the Republican governor of Florida, has also been doing something similar. New York City's Democratic mayor, Eric Adams, was outraged about this at the time. About 65,000 asylum seekers arrived in New York over the past year, though not all of those were bussed by Greg Abbott. And more than 40,000 are still there in, in New York. And with shelters in New York overflowing, it's now Eric Adams who's handing out bus tickets. Our colleague Rosemary has been to the town of Newburgh in the Hudson Valley, which is about 60 miles north of the city, to talk to some of them. So I'm outside the Crossroads Hotel in Newburgh, and there's a number of the asylum seekers hanging out outside in the lovely May sun, checking their phones. A couple have IDs hanging from them, which allows them in and out of the hotel. Pasamos Colombia, Panama, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Honduras, Guatemala, Mexico, United States. It took Oscar Eduardo Angula Rivas three months to reach the southern border from his home in Venezuela. He showed me pictures of his adorable two-year-old son still there. It was difficult to leave his family behind, he told me, taking off his glasses to wipe his tears. His journey to America was arduous. He was saying the roughest part of it was swimming across the Rio Bravo. Getting through it was really hard. In Venezuela, the situation is chaotic. In Venezuela, the situation is very difficult. Yeah. I was a police officer in Venezuela and was only making about $15 a month. Oscar was assaulted and robbed in the city-run shelter where he was staying. So when New York City offered to take him and other migrants to a hotel in Newburgh, where they could stay for four months, be fed three meals a day, and get immigration help, he agreed. New York is just really crowded. There's a lot of immigrants there. There's a lot of folks that are asking for help, and so the sort of assistance and help that we needed was really hard to get. Busing asylum seekers to the city suburbs might relieve pressure in New York City, but local officials who are mostly Republican are not at all happy. Orange and Rockland counties have sued the city to block the buses, even though New York is paying for accommodation, food, security, and is even arranging for immigration aid. I spoke to lawyers at the New York City Liberties Union, which has filed a federal lawsuit against the two counties. They told me the county's lawsuit violates the civil rights of the asylum seekers. 
Amy Belcher told me, you can't put a metaphorical wall around your county. Some locals shout obscenities as they drive by the Crossroads Hotel. Others are trying to help. Were you here when they started to arrive on Thursday? Yes, we were here on Thursday. And, you know, to be able to play a role in making sure that, like, they're not seeing the negativity, but instead signs that are saying welcome. Um, (laughs) I will admit, at first I also felt a little ignorant myself, because I didn't realize, you know, we should have made signs in several different languages, because they all weren't just Spanish speakers. A lot of them were folks that spoke Arabic or French. Rene Majiha is an organizer with For the Many, a grassroots group which helps the vulnerable. A lot of them were very used to and sort of acclimated to the New York City and its surroundings. That's why coming up here, for a lot of them, it was a bit of a shock. Our city has always been welcoming of foreign immigration, and the federal government's taking advantage of it. Catherine Wilde is the head of the Partnership for New York City, an influential business group whose members include Wall Street firms and Fortune 500 companies. Mayor Adams appealed to the Partnership for help in persuading Congress and President Biden to help the city cope with the influx of migrants. Seven buses arrived in the city on Tuesday alone. The mayor made the point that the city has been overwhelmed. Our shelter population in the past months has increased 38%. We already had a record high homeless situation from local residents and to have this on top of it with no federal assistance to speak of has been devastating. So what the mayor is trying to do is find humane places for people to stay while the federal government figures out what they're going to do to help us. So we're in St. Paul and Andrew's Church, which is about three quarters filled of um, asylum seekers, men, women, and children. They're getting food, socks, toiletries, then go into another room to get clothes. There's fresh fruit and coffee, and more vitally, they're getting advice on how to navigate the system that is Americans' immigration. Some of the children look to be newborns. I spoke to Ariane Gutierrez, who worked in a factory in Venezuela before the country's economy collapsed. She, her husband, and two children arrived in New York City about a month ago. Um, she was saying that it's been really helpful. There's different spots. Everything that we've seen, there's different lawyers, tables that are able to speak to. They're there helping her get all of her paperwork um, in order. That there are clothes. She, it's no secret that people come here and they really only have whatever's on their back. So there are clothes and things for children. She, I believe she said that she's here with two children. So those things are very helpful to her. We have federal facilities, military and other, in the city and state that they haven't opened for the migrants. We have been begging, the mayor has been begging for months to allow the asylum seekers to be given protected status so that they can get work, temporary work visas. Catherine Wilde again. The federal government is providing almost no resources. The federal government appropriated $800 million. Only 30 million of that was allocated to New York City. 
the vast majority and a smaller amount to Chicago, the vast majority is going to the southern border region. So there is a real inequity. And this is a national problem, a federal problem. It is in large part a reflection of our failure over the past decades to deal with appropriate immigration policy and immigration reform. But here we are. So, Charlotte, as Rosemary described there, we've got this extraordinary situation in America where you have some Republican governors, Greg Abbott, Ron DeSantis in particular, busing migrants to northern cities controlled by Democrats, and then the mayors of those cities, in this case, Eric Adams, sending some of those migrants on because New York's migrant shelters are full up. Clearly, listening to Rose's report there, there's a lot of suffering here. But just to be a little cold and talk about the politics first... The Republicans' aim, in a sense, is to make Democrats feel like the border isn't thousands of miles away and really have to have to deal with the consequences of being the pro-immigration party. Are they succeeding in that aim politically in some sense? Well, it's interesting. If you look at the polling on this, there has been a decline in satisfaction levels with immigration, which is primarily driven by people who think that immigration should decline, that levels of immigration should decline. And interestingly, among Democrats, the percent of Democrats who were dissatisfied and wanted less immigration basically didn't exist, according to Gallup, in 2021 at just 2 percent. And now it's 19 percent. But I think the issue politically here is that it does make the problem of immigration feel more tangible for voters and politicians in northern states. But I'm not sure that it has the results that the Republican governors intend in that if you talk to many Republicans at the moment, their solution is really about border security full stop. And that's, of course, a bit of a caricature. But I think it's fair to say that a lot of their attention remains simply on border security. And in Democratic circles, including in places where cities have received an influx of migrants, it's clearly seen as a humanitarian problem, that it's not just about securing the border. It's about trying to deal with these very, very raw, heartbreaking challenges that cities are being confronted with. So I don't think that the result of this busing is consensus. To the contrary, I think it does drive home the scale of the problem, but the solutions for it remain miles apart. I think it's very tricky. I think Americans, all Americans, Republican or Democrat, think of themselves as generous and charitable people. But I think the issue is how much you think that these stories, as heartbreaking as they are, are an example of people trying to take advantage of that charity and generosity, right? That's fundamentally, I think, what the debate is here. And whether or not everyone under international law has a right to seek asylum, but is the asylum system as currently set up so broken that uh, it is effectively a, a backdoor for people who are economic migrants and there is a legitimate need for that. But the debate, I think, has been strung around process. I think the process is also so deeply broken that you do see these flows that are actually very sensitive to policy, unlike other areas. You know, some people think that folks are studying the details of welfare policy so closely that they will, you know, make decisions on whether to marry or divorce based on the fine print. And I don't think that that actually happens in real life. But we do see that migration flows are incredibly sensitive to changes of policy at the border. 
And I guess the interesting thing that's happened ever since Title 42 went off last week was that actually rather than surging, the number of people who arrived at the border went down. Yes, Charlotte, there are a couple of things that have happened over the past week or so. One is, I think, increased attention on, at least in and around New York, the flow of migrants out of New York into the Hudson Valley, where Rosemary was reporting. And the other, as Idris says, was the lifting of Title 42. Title 42, just to recap, is a public health measure that the Trump administration dusted off in 2020 when COVID-19 was spreading. And it allowed the Trump administration and then for quite a long time, the Biden administration to return migrants back across the border without putting them through any kind of legal process. So Border Patrol could just pick them up and return them to Mexico in normal times without Title 42 in place, that an interception by Border Patrol or somebody claiming asylum leads to a whole legal process. And so migration wonks, as Idris suggested, were expecting a huge surge of immigration at the border when Title 42 was lifted. And then actually numbers went down, which is weird. Yeah, I think there were wonks who were watching this closely, but also political operatives. Fox News had a countdown clock on its screen for the end of Title 42, and you could kind of see them licking their chops for the impending chaos that would be a a real political gift to the right. It seems like part of the reason why there may not have been this influx are the punitive measures, which include prosecution, but also, crucially, a five-year ban. So if you are are sent back, you cannot try to enter again for five years, which is a really long time for many of these migrants. And that seems to have been a real disincentive. And if you think about how the Biden administration has dealt with Title 42, of course, there was a huge amount of pressure on Biden to differentiate itself from the Trump administration. The left and immigration advocates were pushing for him to end Title 42. And so you saw Biden try to lift it while also immediately preparing for uh, an influx and trying to deter it. So there are various ways that the Biden administration tried to do this. So one is to try to get people to apply before they reach the border. So from certain Central American countries, you can fly to the U.S. directly if you have financial sponsor. That's through something called humanitarian parole There are going to be centers set up within Central America where people can apply for refugee status. There's an app to get appointments to apply for asylum. The problem with some of these is that, you know, the centers for refugee status aren't set up yet. The app is kind of glitchy. But those were a few things that the Biden administration was trying to do. So it's both a combination of trying to get people to apply further from the border so they don't come in the first place and then making it easier to deport some people once they arrive. Right. And it's important to underline before we move on that this is a hugely important issue politically for Democrats in particular. If you look at issue polling at the moment, the most salient issues in American politics are number one, the economy, which is pretty much always there. And immigration comes number two. And it's an issue where Democrats just really struggle to come up with a coherent message on because it is so hard. Charlotte, you mentioned that part of what's going on at the border now is the consequence of a failure on the part of Congress to pass immigration reform. We'll look back at a rare time when Congress came close to passing a comprehensive immigration reform and trace some of the threads of that failure to what's happening now. But first, the usual reminder, we'd love it if you'd take out a subscription to The Economist if you don't already have one. 
You can find the best offer for that at economist.com slash US pod. Idris, what have you particularly enjoyed from our recent coverage? I thought that Annie Crabble, our colleague in New York, wrote a really excellent piece about the long reach of the Brooklyn Federal Court, which is now prosecuting George Santos and has prosecuted many crimes all over the world. Uh, I thought it was really quite a fun read. That is a very neat piece. How about you, Charlotte? I really enjoyed the special report by our colleague Arjun Romani on digital banking. And there's a webinar, a live digital event, that I am moderating with Alice Fullwood of Money Talks fame, as well as Arjun describing digital banking. People can go watch it. And it's super interesting subject. And I thought Arjun broke down a complicated global series of changes in a really clear way. So I recommend it. Yes, if you want to watch that webinar, you'll need a subscription. You can go to economist.com slash podcast offer for a free 30-day digital subscription. You'll find that link in the notes for this episode on your podcast app, wherever you're listening to this. On June 27th, 2013, something unusual happened in American politics. The U.S. Senate approved a landmark immigration bill. It was the latest attempt to overhaul immigration law and promised to tighten border security, make it easier for American firms to take on workers, and provide a pathway to citizenship for undocumented residents. Even more remarkable, the Senate bill was proposed by the bipartisan Gang of Eight, later Seven, which included Republicans Marco Rubio, Lindsey Graham, and John McCain. Shouldn't we give them the same chance that we've given generation after generation of immigrants who have come to this country wave after wave of Irish and Italians and Jews and Poles, and now people from all over the world. Shouldn't we do that? But not every Republican was in agreement. Alabama Senator Jeff Sessions was a fierce opponent of the bill. How can we vote for a bill that our own Congressional Budget Office says will reduce average wages in America for 12 years? Sessions' aide and future communications director was the young Stephen Miller. Brought up in a Jewish, Democrat-voting family in Santa Monica, his maternal grandparents were refugees from what's now Belarus. After graduating high school, Miller published an essay entitled My Dream for Ending Racism. Then, at college, he shifted sharply to the right, making a name for himself as a political provocateur. Immigration reform became a personal obsession, and together with Sessions, Miller worked to defeat the Gang of Eight bill, which he believed would provide an effective amnesty for millions of undocumented workers and incentivize millions more to follow them. As Republican opposition grew, Speaker John Boehner declared he'd only allow consideration of immigration reform if it was supported by a majority of House Republicans. Immigration reform has to be grounded uh, in real border security. It's what the American people believe, and it's a principle... Uh, that our majority believes in as well. The success of Tea Party candidates in the Republican primaries of 2014 ensured that day never came. To Steve Bannon, the achievement of Sessions and Miller in stopping the bill was comparable to the civil rights movement in the 1960s. By the following spring, increasing numbers of child migrants were arriving at the southern border, sometimes unaccompanied, sometimes with a parent. We are dealing with a humanitarian crisis involving children. Illinois Senator Dick Durbin. We are dealing with some of the most vulnerable, most beautiful children you've ever seen, many of whom have gone through fearful lives and trauma on their way to this country. 
that none of us would wish on any child in the world. With no new legislation passed, the Obama administration struggled to find a solution. Separating children from parents as a deterrent was discussed, but rejected as inhumane. So how had Miller and Sessions tanked the Gang of Eight bill? After the 2015 midterms, they published an immigration handbook for the new Republican majority, setting out the rhetoric, stats and tactics Miller had used to rally opposition to the bill. For years, Miller wrote, Americans have been scorned and mocked by the elite denizens of Washington and Wall Street for having legitimate concerns about how uncontrolled immigration impacts their jobs, wages, schools, hospitals, police departments and communities. But those who do the mocking are often ensconced behind gated compounds, guarded private schools, chauffeured SUVs and fenced-off estates. Miller's brand of nation-state populism came good with Donald Trump. I'm in heaven, Ann Coulter tweeted when Trump hired Miller. By the summer of 2017, Miller was in the White House, sparring with CNN journalist Jim Acosta over a new immigration bill. Jim, that is one of the most outrageous, insulting, ignorant and foolish things you've ever said. And for you, that's still a really... The, the notion that you think that this is a racist bill is so wrong and so insulting. Jim. The reality is, is that the foreign-born population into our country has quadrupled since 1970. That's a fact. It's been mostly driven by green card policy. Now, this bill allows for immediate nuclear family members to come into the country, much as they would today, and then it adds an additional points-based system. It was under Miller's direction that border agents began to separate children from their parents, the policy previously dismissed as too inhumane, but which Miller pushed through despite the concerns of some colleagues about child welfare or the ethics of family separation. A decade after the Gang of Eight attempted to break America's immigration impasse, many of the key players are still involved in the issue. Javier Becerra, who played a role for House Democrats in the negotiations, is now in the cabinet. President Biden, asked by Barack Obama to obtain agreements with countries in Central America to stem the flow of migrants, is once again dealing with headlines about border chaos. And Stephen Miller is on Fox News, describing the current situation as the worst immigration crisis in world history. Idris, you've been thinking about the Republican Party and the evolution of the Republican Party since 2016 a fair bit because you're working on a, on a big package on that story, which we should have soon on the podcast and in the newspaper. But one way you could trace that evolution is through this issue of migration, right, and how the Republican Party went from emphasizing the benefits, the economic benefits of immigration to a Stephen Millerish view where not only are there no economic benefits or few economic benefits, but there's a threat from immigration to American culture and, and society. Yeah, you can see the shift within the Republican Party from the neoliberal worldview to the populist one over the course of the past few decades. So in the 1980s, the Reaganite idea that there should be fewer barriers to trade also extended to the comfortable idea for big business that there ought to be free movement of labor. And so, you know, people like the Wall Street Journal often opined saying that uh, immigration was good for the country and needed to be expanded, that there were economic benefits to immigration that weren't being accrued that ought to. 
And that shifted with Donald Trump. It was beginning to before then. And the consensus is now within the Republican Party, it's anti-corporate. And, and therefore, the issue against immigration is not that it's, it's pro or, or negative on the uh, economy. It's that it's a threat to American cultural values. That's a, the sort of nationalism and the populism that's resurgent. And that just tells you the story of what's happened. And so then, Charlotte, Donald Trump becomes president and Stephen Miller and co. get their hands on immigration policy. What do they actually do? What are the real world effects of the Trump administration's migration policy? Because I think all of us who covered this remember, you know, various kind of flashpoints, crises, you know, a lot of heat. But, but what actually changed? So you'll recall that right at the beginning of the Trump administration, there was a travel ban on Muslim majority countries and you had people all over the country protesting, including tech companies out there with uh, CEOs with megaphones and so forth. It was really something that got people exercised. That didn't have that big effect on overall numbers. There were other measures that people will remember. Building the wall, of course, separating children from their parents, which sparked enormous uproar, including from the likes of Laura Bush, the wife of George W. Bush. One of the most Important policies in terms of its actual impact was the Remain in Mexico policy, which was to keep migrants either in detention or in Mexico. And so you did have different policies that had an impact overall on migration a bit. But the single biggest and most important change during the Trump years was COVID and the decline in migration levels that you saw after the pandemic began. And Idris, why does this issue, immigration and the border, work so much better for Republicans than it does for Democrats, despite the crazy policies that Donald Trump's administration pursued on this? I mean, there's a political science view that Democrats are the mummy party and Republicans are the daddy party, right? And that Republicans get more trust from voters on public spending because they're flintier and also on immigration because they're tougher and on national security because they sound tougher, whereas voters trust the Democrats more on looking after social security and Medicare. Is that what's going on here or is there something else? I think if you broaden your lens, both in terms of place and time, this particular episode starts to look kind of predictable in the sense that if you look back in time, to uh, America at the turn of the century back when its foreign-born population was about one in seven, which is the same as it is now. That's when you started to get the first surge of nativism and uh, know-nothing-ism and, uh, you know, Charles Lindbergh was the guy who started the America First movement. Back then it was called America First. And so you see basically that maybe there's this episodic quality where whenever the foreign-born population gets too high and people perceive it as, as, as a threat, that's when appetite for these sorts of policies increase. But then I think if you also look at it across place, in, in some ways, America's unexceptional in its reaction to, to migration. You see that this is a problem just all over the world. To Idris's point, this is clearly an easier issue for Republicans, and everyone knows that. And you saw that in Trump's town hall that he did with CNN last week. But he was very aggressive, as aggressive as ever in his rhetoric, talking in dire terms about what would happen after Title 42 was lifted. So a warning that this is an issue that won't go away and that I think that particularly if if Trump is the nominee, will be elevated in the next 18 months. 
Well, that's a good place to pause the discussion because in a moment we're going to look at what the Biden administration has done on immigration in its first few years in office and what the plan is now that Title 42 has been lifted. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Despite Donald Trump's ferocious record on immigration, in the first couple of years of his administration, illegal immigration actually went up. His successor, President Biden, has also struggled with rising numbers, though in recent days, as we discussed, arrivals at the southern border have fallen. Doris Meisner of the Migration Policy Institute is one of the wisest people on this subject, and she's somebody who's long been a great source for lots of economists, journalists covering immigration in America. I talked to her earlier this week, and I started by asking her how Biden's immigration policy differed from Donald Trump's. The Biden administration's terminology and its philosophical premise is that we need to have border control, but we need to have humane enforcement. And on the very first day, on Inauguration Day, within hours, the Biden administration had issued a series of executive orders drawing a sharp line in the sand that immigration was going to be important and that things were going to be different. However, as soon as they got into office, the numbers of people coming across the border illegally really went up sharply within the first month, within the first weeks. And the administration was simply not prepared for that. They didn't anticipate it. They weren't ready for it. And the administration has never recovered from that, from the standpoint of border enforcement. And then more recently, the Biden administration, I mean, since the midterms, since Democrats lost their majority in the House, seems to have taken a different tack, right? The Biden administration was quite frustrated in its first two years by a number of lawsuits and injunctions that stopped things that it wanted to do that involved both the border and other aspects of immigration. However, the administration also did, in the first two years, pretty much take a stance that there were other things that were a very high priority for the Biden administration that did have to do with the pandemic, that had to do with the American Rescue Plan, climate issues, and that's where we want to focus. And that's what they did. But after the midterms, losing uh, the House and uh, recognizing what some of the real vulnerabilities were likely to be going into the next two years of the administration, which invariably then become a run-up to the re-election in 2024. And clearly the decision that was forming that President Biden himself would run for re-election has brought this issue of the border much more front and center. Because after all, one of the very important things about the Biden brand as a leadership figure has been competence and competence in government. And the border is a counter story 
to that. So yes, the overall approach has changed because it's clear, or it became clear, I think it's fair to say to the president himself and certainly to senior members of the administration, that what they were doing was just not working. One of the most important factors here, which maybe gets neglected a little bit, is what's going on in Mexico's politics, in Mexico's own border enforcement, and also what's going on in countries further south. Well, the core thing to understand, of course, is that our migration across the southwest border until very recently has been almost entirely Mexican. That then began to change in the last five, six, seven years to Central Americans. But the amazing thing about that is that even with that change, which took two, three years, maybe four or five to manifest, even since then, starting in about 2019, it's broadened beyond Central Americans coming to the country to people from various other places in the hemisphere, Ecuador, Brazil, Colombia, Venezuela, extremely important here, Haiti. And we're also seeing with what's going on in Europe, we are seeing Russians coming to the border. We are, we certainly saw Ukrainians coming to the border. We are seeing Chinese again coming to the border. The, the landscape has changed very dramatically. Doris, I'm going to make you president and I'm going to give you a trifecta. So you've got, you know, nice majorities in the House and the Senate. What is the Meissner plan which can win the support for a majority of Americans and you know, bring the sort of order to the border that voters seem to want while also enforcing immigration law in a in a humane way and not absolutely busting through the federal budget? I think that I would typically give you a more, you know, policy wonk kind of an answer, but I'm going to give you an answer that is just appearing in the press in a column that Tom Friedman wrote, which really captures it. And he is saying the United States needs high, 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 impenetrable walls and big, big, big open gates, which is to say immigration is a very critical part of our future, but we cannot get to the point of establishing generous and in the national interest policies without at the same time having our public feel confident that this is not a chaotic, out-of-control situation, that in fact we are minding the store as a nation. And with that confidence, we can have the self-assurance to do what is in our best interests, which is to have generous immigration policies for legal immigration. So Charlotte, as Doris said there, the Democratic Party comes in, the Biden administration comes in with philosophically a very different approach to the Trump administration, and yet still the same practical problem, right? Wanting support for legal migration and for refugees coming into America, and actually the number of refugees resettled by America goes back up to more normal levels. During the Trump administration, it was you know virtually zero in some years. But 
People in the administration know that that support for legal immigration is contingent on seeming to have the border, in quotes, under control. And Title 42 is quite helpful for that, right? And lots of immigration activists and folks on the left wing of the Democratic Party are really unhappy that the Biden administration keeps Title 42 in place. But now it's lifted. And so to some extent, they're back to square one. What do they do now? I think that the aspiration, right, is to have a humane, orderly process for migrants. And the issue is that no one now is satisfied with the array of fixes that the Biden administration has put forth. So it's clearly insufficient for Republicans. The ACLU has a lawsuit arguing against the provision that those seeking uh, refugee status need to do so on their way to Mexico. They have to have applied in the countries through which they pass before reaching the border. They say that that is illegal. So there's a lot of resistance to this current set of fixes, which is not altogether surprising because it's a patchwork that deals with the problem that people are trying to find ways to use asylum to enter the United States, but it doesn't really make sense even as a short-term policy, let alone a long-term policy for thinking about sensible immigration going forward. Asylum, of course, isn't a sensible way to have immigration policy. It's just because Congress has been unable to pass immigration policy that it has become this avenue through which people seek to enter. And then there's all kinds of machinations around the, the precise nature of asylum proceedings and so forth. But it starts from a fundamental problem, which is that they're human beings who want to enter the United States and who are enduring horrible trips and then treatment on their arrival. Uh, there's a broader problem for communities in which they're they're seeking to relocate. As they try to handle this influx of migrants, there are also bad actors who are trying to enter the United States, and the policy for it is a mess. And the question is whether Congress can ever act on it. You see some action among Republicans now, but it's not the type that would be geared toward consensus, nor would deal with the full array of problems. What do you make of what's happening on the Hill now, Idris? Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think that there's going to be any deal to have complete immigration reform, which is, you know, a mix of regularizing the status of undocumented immigrants who are still here, expanding legal immigration, and once and for all, uh, at least as close as possible, limiting the flow of unauthorized migration across the southern border. I just don't think that there is any appetite for that among the Republicans who think that that is a, a raw deal, a repeat of the Reagan era experiment which went wrong. And among Democrats, obviously, there's uh, close to unanimous agreement for this stuff, but um, they don't have a complete control over, over Congress at the moment. So I, I don't think it's going to go anywhere um, anytime soon. I do think also that Immigration is one of these issues where there's quite a lot of authority vested within the president, uh, that in trade. And what we see is that the Biden administration has, I think, quietly kept a lot of Trump era restrictions. They've gotten rid of the family separation, which you know became the face of the of, of the Trump administration. But a lot of the the core, you know, the keeping of Title Forty Two, the you know expansion of the Remain in Mexico policy, this new app is in line with what the Trump administration was was aiming for. Alexandra wrote a, a very good piece about how the Biden administration was even continuing building the wall in some places, right? Yes, that's right. I mean, in a way, if you just look at the authorities, you say, invested in the president, 
they've been feeling their way towards an immigration policy, a border policy, which seems pretty sensible to me, right? Putting more energy into border enforcement and at the same time allowing more legal migrants and more refugees into the country. But they're really not very good about talking about what they're doing. And that's probably something that needs to change in the next couple of years. Okay, before I let you guys go, you know what's coming. It's quiz time. On January the 21st, 1911, The Economist published an article on steerage to America. It estimated that over the past five years, the average number of passengers from Europe to America at steerage rates, so kind of bargain price, has been 800,000, 1.2 million, or 20,000. Average annual number over the past five years. And just to give you those figures again, your options are 800,000 a year, 1.2 million, or 20,000 a year. Uh, hmm. I was going to go 1.2 million or 800,000, but I think... You can't have two out of the three options, I'm afraid. That's not how this I works. I know, I know, sorry. Even <laughs> with your knowledge of the um, quiz rules, you should know that's the case. I go with 1.2, but Idris looks very confident. He's. Yeah, I think it's 1.2. It is indeed 1.2. Congratulations, guys. These great companies continue to find the flow of emigrant traffic across the Atlantic a most profitable source of revenue, we wrote. But how profitable? Revenue obtained by the steamship companies from the handling of this traffic averaged about $5 million a year, $10 million a year, or $55 million a year. Sorry, inflation adjusted or nominal? It's a really good question. So this is taken from the article in 1911. It's at the time. So I'm going to go with the middle number you gave. Idris, what are you going for? 5 million, 10 million, or 55 million? I'd go with five. It was $55 million in 1911, wow. which is a wild amount of money, which I guess goes to show the business of moving people to America has been profitable for a long time. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you, Idris. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you. Thanks very much. Now, a request for you, our dear listeners. We're always trying to improve our podcasts here at The Economist, and we'd really like your help. Whether you're a regular listener or a new listener, we'd like to hear from you. Please tell us what you think by filling out our listener survey. It only takes a few minutes. To take part, visit economist.com slash US pod survey. But if it's a choice between that and subscribing, please just subscribe. This episode was produced by Julia Johnson and Stevie Hertz. Nico Rofast is our sound engineer. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can also get in touch with us via email. The address for that is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance for you next week. <laughs>